Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. This is not a drink cart, neither is it an arts and crafts cubby cart. It is my rolling lab. We'll get to that in a second. How are y'all doing? Doing good. And since you ask, I'm doing okay. Uh, my wife has been out of town for the weekend, and we agreed to watch out for the neighbor's house, and they have some animals that I'm now taking care of. So on top of preparing for a sermon, I've been caring for a toddler, a dog, seven chickens, a fish, and a cat. So I'm fine, really. I'm good. Uh, we're going to wrap up our series. We've been in a series for about six or seven weeks or so called It's a Mad, Mad World. And um, I have good news that by the time we're done today, the world will no longer be mad. We did it. No, just kidding. The world's going to be crazy as ever. But hopefully, my intention today is to kind of give you a little bit of a nudge. You're like the, the, the baby eagle on the cliff that I'm just going to push off gently and say, spread your wings and fly into the mad, mad world. And you're going to look back and you're going to say, I'm not ready. But hopefully by the end of today, you'll understand you have more than enough to go out there and be ambassadors of reconciliation. We're going to do this by looking in uh, Matthew chapter 5. And this is... Uh, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew are a kind of a, a section of the, of the book of Matthew that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. So here's a couple of nuggets as you open your Bibles or open your, your handouts. Um, Matthew had a way of writing uh, that was particularly kind of impactful to the Jewish audience. Um, in my studies in school, I remember coming across things that I thought, there is no way that I would recognize this stuff. I mean, even when, and you kind of have to look in the original language to find some of this stuff, but he would write in structures and meters, and he would allude to little things that the Jewish audience would have just clicked off on, and it would have kind of helped them to have a little bit more insight as to what Matthew was saying. Uh, and one of the things that's happening, one that we can see maybe a little bit easier, is as Jesus is talking to a crowd of people on a mount or a hillside in the Sermon on the Mount. He is, is up there and he's talking to these people about how to live according to God's ways. Kind of like, hey, here's what, according to the new covenant, here's kind of how we're to live in the world and among one another. And so to the Jewish audience, this probably would have reminded them of somebody else who stood on a hillside or a mountainside and spoke to a crowd and said, this is how we live according to God's plan for us. His name was Moses. We talked to him about him a couple of weeks ago on Mount Sinai. Obviously, there's some differences between the two. But Moses was kind of seen as a part of Israel's redemption story. Because God used him, as we talked about, to, to lead the Israelites out of bondage from slavery in Egypt. And so now you have Jesus in the same position speaking to a crowd saying, this is how we live as this great redeemer somebody who is liberating us from the bondage of sin. So just hold on to that. Whenever you come across Jesus talking in the Mount and, and the Sermon on the Mount, just remember that because who knows, it may spark some new thought in your head. Um, we're going to start with Matthew uh, 5, 1 through 12. This is a section called the Beatitudes, and I think we should have it on screen. Now, tell me if you're like me. When I started off kind of getting into this stuff, I saw the word Beatitudes, and I thought it was a compound word of two English words, be and attitude. Like, this needs to be my attitude, right? And then I saw what looked like a, a list. It's kind of rearranged a little bit here. But it looked like a list of things that I thought, well, I should be this if I'm going to be a Christian. The problem with that view is that lists are something that kind of point back to ourselves. 
If we read the Beatitude and we say like, okay, so I need to be poor in the spirit and I don't want to mourn, but I will, so I guess I'll check that one off. Uh, we find ourselves saying weird things like, I need to be more meek. I need to be more meek. I don't even know what meek meant, I think, when I was first saying that, but I kind of, but yeah, so a list is something that we do to kind of check off so that we can kind of get what we want. Lists, whether we like it or not, are kind of about us. And so they point to us. It's a way of getting what we want. Uh, the alternative reading is to view this as a picture, as a picture of God's community, who any one of us at any given time, rather than seeking to check these things off, has this experience of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we can, maybe one of us in the room is mourning. Maybe one of us is feeling, you know, in relation to meek, it's feeling like somebody's got their thumb on you, that you're kind of having to submit yourself to things that you don't want to. So Jesus comes in, and he answers every single one of these with essentially, there is hope. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And it continues on a little bit about uh, persecution. Pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And I would imagine, like, if this was a lively crowd, they're like, amen, 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 for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for you in the same way, uh, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And, and so this is something that is kind of calling out the struggle, Okay? That, that being uh, somebody who follows Christ, being somebody who devotes their life to God is going to be hard because it rubs against the culture. And we experience some of these things. So again, rather than this being like a list, this is something that kind of explains us. And what we get is Jesus saying, there is hope, there is hope, there is hope, there is hope. And so this picture is a picture that points back to Jesus. So just remember those two. You've got a list that kind of points to us and how we can check things off. That was the problem with the Israelites and the law is that they, had, they got a list of things that they thought, we'll check this off. And then laws became about loopholes. Are you all with me? And so then they kind of started to twist the law so it was self-serving versus this picture which points to Jesus. The difference is that in the first example, we focus more on the, the first thing in each statement. And the second one, we focus on the second thing that points to Christ. It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of the biblical Community, And I want to say one more thing about that. There's this kind of temptation to read things like this and think that maybe it's only talking about uh, one day in heaven. Because it talks about, you know, the, the future and the kingdom of heaven and all these different things. And I believe that Jesus was deeply invested in the here and now. I think he still is. Um, I mean, think about blessed are those who mourn. I mean, how cold would it be for Jesus to stand there and be like, are you mourning? Don't worry. One day you too will be dead and everything will be okay, right? That's not the kind of thing that wins people over. And it's not, I don't think, what Jesus is saying. What he does is he speaks of a future hope in a way that unleashes that future hope into a present reality. Because you and I live as kingdom people. As we attach ourselves to Christ, as we seek to pursue that which God wants for us that reflects the kingdom of heaven, we have a way of kind of bringing that here on earth. Are y'all with me in this? Yeah? Amen. And so we think back again. Jesus is standing here in front of you, and he says, is there anyone here who's in mourning? 
And then as kingdom people, what happens when Jesus says, for they will be comforted? Yes, there's comfort in heaven, but as a body of believers, we're here for one another, are we not? I have that experience. When I lost my grandmother not that long ago, uh, we, I've been meeting with this guy for like seven years, my friend Ray. We started in Life to Life, and that was kind of, we were launching that. And um, so we've been through a lot together. And he was, you know, my family was there for me, of course, and I was there for my family, but I'll never forget that moment of walking in and telling him and what that meant to me, to receive comfort from somebody who was in the body with me, who was in proximity with me, doing life with me, or that if somebody else is experiencing something like being suppressed, you know, maybe they got somebody that's kind of bossing them around. We can be the people that rally around them in Christ's name and say, you have a voice that matters, and we'll stand up with you. If you're feeling poor in spirit, you're feeling run down, we can be that body in Christ's name, empowered by the Holy Spirit to say, I'm here for you. Let me speak light and life and hope and love into you, rather than to say that's your problem. That's what the world does. I don't want to be bothered with that. We can be a kingdom people. So as he speaks about a future hope, it unleashes it into a present reality. And, and, and this is hopefully lifting your spirits and it's lifting the spirits of the people that he's talking this to. Because then he kind of goes into some of the hard stuff. In Matthew uh, 5.13, he talks about being salt and, and, and light. But we're just going to look at the salt first. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt is good for a lot of things. Um, I think it's useful to kind of think about something in particular that salt is useful for, but I think we can get a fuller understanding of the importance of salt when we look at all of what it's used for. So what kind of things do we like salt for? Taste. We like salt. We like to salt. Food. Yeah, we like it. Uh, it can preserve. I think I heard somebody say that. Not that long ago. I mean, now we put our meat in freezers and stuff. Not that long ago, that was kept in, in barrels of salt to preserve it. I think that's why we have such good deli meat that's so loaded with salt. It's because they were preserving this stuff, and we were like, we like that. Let's keep that. Um, salt is, is kind of used as like an antibacterial or antiseptic. I came across an interesting verse in Ezekiel 16, uh, which mentions a baby being covered in salt which is weird to me. Like, I, I'm used to the idea of salting baby back ribs, but putting salt on a baby, it's just really foreign. But it kind of makes sense because, again, it kind of has these properties where it can kill bacteria. So maybe it was a part of their ritual, but it had a use as well. And so all of these things kind of reveal that salt is, is, is a precious commodity. Right now, for us, it's a condiment. But um, I think even in this country, as, as late as like the 1800s, salt was actually more expensive than meat. Because families and livestock relied on salt to stay alive. Our bodies need salt to stay alive. Too much, and it kills us. Too little, and we die. Um, so it's very important. I have a couple of salt facts for you. Interesting little tidbits. The word salary has the word sal, which is Latin for salt, in it. Anybody pick that up or know that before? I didn't. Not until I was researching for this sermon. And uh, so some of the stories go like this. The one that most common is that Roman soldiers were paid in bars of salt, so they got a salary. Um, the problem with this is that there's not any record of actually Roman soldiers being paid with bars of salt. There is record throughout the world and throughout cultures and history of people being paid in bars of salt, uh, but that's not necessarily the case with the Roman soldiers. 
um, there was some report, historical reports of uh, slaves being traded for salt because salt was used as currency. So when you hear the phrase, they're not worth their salt, it in essence means they're not worth what I paid for them, right? It's an awful and cruel thing to say, but that's where we get it from. Uh, the other story about salary is that maybe these Roman guards were, were guarding kind of trade routes for salt, and so they got paid for protecting the salt. The final one is, uh, you know, they were paid, and I guess they would spend it on salt because it was that important. I have another thing that you can talk about. This, is, this has got a point, I promise. Uh, you remember the, the, the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, not DiCaprio? There it is. Okay, so this is a restored version of it. And uh, Judas is, is, is on the left of Jesus there, not the redhead or the whitehead, but the dark hair. We can zoom in on him. Okay, he's holding a bag of money, and he has also spilled the salt. Ah, this is a detail that actually when people recreate this painting, they leave it out sometimes because it's so minor. And on the original one, it had gotten pretty faded, so it was hard to notice. But as I looked into this, I found out that at some point in culture, at least in Leonardo's time, uh, spilling the salt was a sign of enmity. So think about this. And there was a report that, you know, salt was, again, it was so valuable, it was so highly regarded, that if you showed up as a guest to somebody's house to eat, they would present you with the salt before they would present you with the food. Which is interesting, because now if you show up at a friend's house and you salt the food they made, they're like, really? But they would give the salt to you first. And so the belief is that, you know, of course, if you're careless and you knock it over, that's not a good thing. That salt is really valuable. That's really precious. And so the idea here is that Judas was motivated by the devil. And so the devil made him knock over the salt. This is where we get, if you spill the salt, throw it over your shoulder, to blind the devil. Huh? Isn't that, isn't that cool? So now you have a bunch of salt things that when you're at a friend's house and, and they say, can you pass the salt, you can wow them with these wonderful salt facts. And 15 minutes later, when they're still looking at you, just go, the more you know. <laughs> uh, so actually something that really does kind of relate in, in a deeper way is that salt, um, as it was mined, and this is, this is kind of like historians, kind of what they believe was happening. As salt was mined out of the Dead Sea, you and I, we get salt that's really there was other minerals in there with it. So it wasn't quite as pure. And there's reports of salt being stored in these storehouses, and the salt that was closest to the ground, where moisture had access to it, it would leach out the sodium and the chloride ions, which is what salt is made of. It would leach it out, and what was left was something that looked like salt, but it no longer had its taste. It no longer had its salt properties. That answers the question, how does salt lose its saltiness? And so really, when I think Jesus is talking about saying, you're the salt of the earth, and he talks about not losing saltiness, in a way, he's talking about not being deluded, right? Because as people who commit ourselves to following Christ, as people who are kingdom people, as people who seek to be ambassadors of reconciliation, we have to make sure that we're not being deluded by the culture. And we can see that happening. I know I, I hear that in little conversations and commentary, that Christianity is kind of not what it used to be that it's weakening in some ways, that we're allowing more and more and more of it to, and even as Randy pointed out uh, last week, that you know, it used to be the case that our faith would inform our politics and then it became the other way around. So there's evidence of us kind of maybe being on the edge of, of, of diluting a little bit. So we need to maintain our saltiness so that we can be useful. The second thing that he goes into in uh, Matthew 5, 14 through 16 is, is, is light as an image. And uh, he says, you are the light 
of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do a people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And light, quite simply, has everything to do with visibility. That as people who are maintaining our strength as God's people, not being deluded, that we can be essentially a light in a darkened world, right? That we can be a light to others, that we can be a light that draws others to God. And I want to share something about this because this visibility, I think being a light kind of requires us to be visible in my faith, is that right? And that requires us to be a little bit vulnerable. So I want to share you a story about kind of vulnerability here. And I'm going to start with this cool uh, story that I heard about a, na- a lady by the name of Asa Mahano. If I'm mispronouncing that, I'm really sorry, but this is her. She was an engineer, still is an engineer, and was working with Greenpeace and uh, was in the Philippines and went up into uh, a region of the Philippines in the mountains and saw that people were in the dark, a lot of them, that they had no electricity. And so what they would do is they would go down to the city and get kerosene and carry it in these tins upwards of 31 miles along jagged footpaths. And, of course, this was only the people that could do this. So that was their only way of getting light and bringing it back up the mountains and then putting it in a kerosene lamp, which can be dangerous in some ways. It can release pollutants and things like that. And so she said there's got to be a better way for these people to have light. So she started thinking about what they had available to them, and that was salt and that was water. And so she and her brother developed something based on two pre-existing, relatively simple ideas, concepts that existed. One was to take salt water and, and two different kinds of metal and create a battery. And the other was just to take LED, light-emitting diodes, and which require a lot of low voltage. It doesn't require much voltage at all. And to make a light powered basically by salt water, as they explain it. And I was really inspired by the story because I thought, this is like a cool sort of example of how salt can bring light into the world, right? Are y'all with me on this? I'm not trying not to, to, to lose anybody because I, I want to explain the saltwater battery and nerd out on it, but I think people will just turn off and go to sleep. Um, but I thought this is a cool example, and I started researching how it worked, and I thought, well, maybe what I can do is demonstrate this on stage for everyone because you know how I like to mix things up. So my plan was actually to um, make a saltwater battery and, and, like, open the whole sermon with this, you know. And um, so I, I looked it up, and I got my stuff together. I was in the kitchen doing this, by the way, and Jenny was trying to make dinner. So, ladies, if you're married to somebody who, as soon as they get something in from Amazon, they decide to set up shop on the kitchen table, I am really sorry. I was that guy this week earlier. All right, so I got my metals in from Amazon. I got some copper and some zinc, and I got my leads, and I got some containers, and uh, so I've got my, my metals in here. I was making sure they weren't touching. I wired everything up right. I poured in the salt water. I've got it connected to this LED. And what happened is it didn't work. And I'm watching my intro unravel in front of me. And the sermon is, is only a few days out, and Jenny's leaving town. And so um, I'm starting to panic, although I don't panic often. And I'm kind of getting down on myself. I'm sorry about this mic. It's. Uh, and Jenny can feel it. And she's like, hey, B. She calls me B. I've been doing that since, like, college. It's a nice thing. So, hey, B, don't, don't, don't panic. It'll be okay. You can do it. And I'm looking at this, and I'm like, it's not going to work. I need to find something else. And, and as I was in this moment, I was feeling a bit of shame. Because 
you know, by and large, I'm somebody who likes to think I'm capable of doing things, especially if I watch somebody do it on YouTube, right? <laughs> and so I was thinking about this, and that voice of shame was coming back in, and it was saying, you know, what in the world were you thinking? This engineer goes into, a, you know, another country and works with a team, her brother and some other people, and develops this thing, and you think you're going to recreate it over, like, in one night in your kitchen off some things you order off of Amazon? What were you thinking? And I begin to feel kind of stupid for this. And I was like, okay, so I really don't want to talk about this. i got to find something different. And it was sitting in that awkwardness that I realized maybe the value in this illustration is not producing a like. Because this is kind of gimmicky. You know, it's really just an illustration. Maybe the value is telling you guys about a moment where I was trying to utilize salt to bring light. And I felt like an absolute failure. Maybe this is a place where I can connect with everyone, because as I think about what it means to go out there and be salt and light in a mad, mad world, I don't think the madness of this world is our real barrier. I think it's our own feeling of inadequacy, of vulnerability. I think it's the things that we are ashamed of. It's the voice in our head that says, you can't make any difference. If they knew anything about you, they would stop listening to you. It's that voice that when you're sitting out here in worship and somebody on, says, on stage says, Jesus loves you and he wants a relationship with you. It's that voice that says, no, he wants it for everyone else, not me. I'm, I'm far too gone. I'm far too broken. And so we stop before we ever get a chance to produce any light. There's a, a, a psychologist by the name of Brene Brown and she's got a book called Daring Greatly, which is a fantastic book. She studies shame. And so I have a list of things from her book, Daring Greatly, that I just wanted to look at this list. And we can read it together. It just say, shame is getting laid off and having to tell my pregnant wife. Shame is having someone ask me, when are you due when I'm not pregnant? Yep. Shame is hiding the fact that I'm in recovery. Shame is raging at my kids. Shame is bankruptcy. Shame is my boss calling me an idiot in front of the client, or maybe they don't just straight up call you an idiot. Maybe you just, they do little things just to cut you down in front of other people. Shame is my husband leaving me for my next-door neighbor. Shame is my DUI. Shame is my infertility. Shame is Internet porn. Shame is flunking out of school twice. Shame is hearing my parents fight through the walls and wondering if I'm the only one who feels this afraid. These are just a few examples, and they're powerful, powerful examples of some of the shame that we feel. Now, I want to take you back to the Beatitudes, how that wasn't a list, but that was a picture of our struggle as a community, how it's a picture of the hope that Christ has to offer us as a group, as a body in the midst of that struggle. And I want you to look at this and look at it as a picture of shame in this community that you may not have all of these. You may have one. Maybe you have something kind of close to one of them. But as a group, we probably have a good number on this list or something like it. We may even be able to add to it. But imagine in this moment, in this picture of shame, that Jesus comes out to each one of these and he says, there is hope. There is hope. There is hope. He takes that picture that we point at ourselves and he directs it back to him to bring us life. He says, there is hope, there is hope. You are not defined by this. 
In the same way that those disciples listening to him were not defined by the struggle of feeling meek and feeling oppressed and feeling spiritually poor, we are not defined by our shame. In the spirit of John 3.17, Jesus says, he doesn't say this, but in the spirit I imagine him saying, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. I am here to restore you. I am here to rebuild you. But we have to let him do that. We have to be vulnerable in that process. Yeah, amen. Brene Brown talks about um, dealing with shame. And she says, you know, it's not that we should fight it, because that can last for a little bit and it'll eventually go away. And it's not that we can pretend like it's not there, but we have to acknowledge it. We have to acknowledge our feelings of inadequacy, our fears, our anxiety, our doubts. We have, to, we have to acknowledge that they're there. We have to acknowledge that we've been through some stuff. We have to acknowledge that maybe we're in the middle of it. But then we can allow Jesus to come in and disarm it. It's the monster under the bed. As soon as you shine the light under there, yeah, there's some junk under there. But there's nothing that, that, that can, that's going to stop you from doing what Jesus has called you to do. Yeah. Amen. And so think of this. And this is something that occurred to me a little while back, and I remember it from time to time. Jesus says the words, if salt loses its saltiness, then what good is it? It can be thrown out and trampled underfoot. In our moments of shame, anxiety, doubt, feelings of inadequacy, those are the hardest moments where maybe we're brought to tears, where sweat is pouring out of our body. But if you've ever had that experience, the feeling of tears streaming down your cheek and hitting your lips, you know what tears taste like. What do they taste like? Salt. Your sweat tastes like salt. And so in those moments, you can think back about that verse when the enemy's trying to attack you, and you can say, there's still salt left in me. Yeah. As long as there is still salt left in me, God's got a plan for me to do something. And he has a plan to answer my shame and my inadequacy. There is hope. There is hope. And chances are he wants to use that shame. He wants to use those things as a part of that story. Think about this. If I'd have hid this, what good would it have done? But to kind of use it to talk about, uh, you know, that feeling of failure, it brought me to a new revelation. I was writing the sermon and I was thinking, okay, so, so tears and salt and sweat and we go through seasons of pouring it out, pouring it out, pouring it out, and pouring it out and eventually we see light. And as I was thinking that, I thought, but wait a second, I remembered my failed experiment over here, but then a new idea clicked in. I had seen some other examples where these batteries were made by using a whole bunch of little containers instead of a couple of big ones. And so I set out to find a design and make it. And so here we go, a very vulnerable moment. What if in life we experience pouring it out? There are 16 cubes in here, containers, we pour it out, we pour it out, our sweat, our tears, we lean into Jesus, he says there is hope, keep going, there is hope, there is hope, there is hope, there is hope, where'd it go, hold on, when I uh, do too much it short circuits, there we go, oh I moved it, they had the camera on it, sorry about that. And this, yeah, it's just a fun visual. But what a symbol 
of what this is like for us. That we have these seasons where God is asking us to pour it out, to live out loud, to be vulnerable, to share our struggles. My wife often on Instagram will be open about the struggle of parenting. You moms know the pressures that the world puts on you to be perfect at all times when your kid is screaming in torchies and all you want to do is eat a taco and people are looking at you like you're crazy, you've lost your mind. And Jenny's pretty open about getting on Instagram and just saying like, okay, here's the reality of parenting. Before you think my life's perfect, here's what happened. I yelled at my kids. I did this. This happened. And I had a friend come to me, and they didn't understand, I guess, and they said, you know, isn't that kind of, what they were saying was more or less like, it just seems so negative, you know, like, she's just like, ugh, heavy. But what they were missing was the direct messages, these emails that she was getting from various people who were just saying, thank you. Thank you. People who haven't even had kids yet, who later on had kids and said, I would have had no idea. I would have thought I was crazy, that I was totally alone in this. But you took this and you made yourself vulnerable. And now that I can, I feel like I've got an identity in this. I feel like I'm not alone in this. So this is it. This is what it means to go out and to be salt and light. This is a dare, if you will. A dare to be salt, a dare to be light. A dare to allow God to come in and speak hope into your feelings of inadequacy. And I guarantee you that you will see light on the other side. I've been in ministry for a long time. And so I've had seasons like this over and over. This week was one of them. And I was in worship and I was just thinking back about when I was in student ministry. I met with these kids and I would take them to McDonald's in the morning. And they were the rowdiest group. You know, we're talking teenagers who would stand up and jump on the bench while we're waiting for food. And um, I didn't find out till I moved on from there that I got a letter from one of the parents that said that, you know, my son was struggling with thoughts of suicide. But you're being there, daring to just kind of lean into his life, gave him some hope. And years later, I went back out to help that church, and he was leading other students. He was dressed up like a total clown, sharing the love of Jesus. God can take anything. If you're looking back at me today, this morning, and you thought I'm not ready, you are ready. Y'all with me? That's it, guys. I, I hope you feel encouraged. Amen. Um, yeah, let's pray. <laughs> uh, God, thank you so much. Thank you for resilience, God. Thank you for the... the the words of hope that lead us to push on. Thank you for calling us to be light in this world. Thank you for reminding us that we don't have to be stopped by our feelings of inadequacy and shame. Thank you for the, 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 the fact that we will see the light, God, that some of us can see it in a short time, and for some of us, we have to wait a while, God, but that light comes out, and it illuminates the dark places, and we see somebody respond. And God, we see something that we thought was our worst characteristic, the worst thing about us. And you took it and you made it into something new. You, you eliminated the enemy's power over that. And you took control. We thank you, God. That is my prayer for everybody here. It is in your precious and holy name. Amen. All right. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.